This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am joined by Caroline O'Donohue, the author of The Rachel Incident, a book that you are all going to love so very much. You may be familiar with her YA fantasy series, All Our Hidden Gifts, but this is something so different and so unique. I am so excited to talk about this book. Caroline, thank you so much for being with us today. Hello. Thank you so much for such a wonderful introduction. I read this book so fast the first time that I got my hands on it because I could not stop turning the pages once it started. And so I would love to give my version of the events, but I think I'd like to start with you setting the book up for all of us. Okay. Okay. I thought you were letting me off the hook there. I was like, oh, great. Somebody else can summarize the plot while giving nothing away. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, the Rachel incident takes place in 2010 in Cork City, which is um, a sort of smallish city in the south of Ireland. And I don't know how many people know this, but like the financial crash uh, hit Ireland particularly hard. It's everywhere pretty hard, but it hit Ireland hard, uh, hardest, we think. <laughs> the lead character, Rachel Murray, she is um, graduating in her final year of like an English degree. She's gone to university in her hometown. She's kind of old old before her time a little bit she works part-time in a bookshop as she's finishing her degree life is very gray for her I think um she, you know she feels quite disappointed by life already by the lack of opportunities and then one day during a Christmas shift she meets the person who's going to sort of change her life forever really and his name is James Devlin he is incredibly charismatic and very fun a Christmas temp who at this point is is in the closet, even though it's kind of one of those why the hell is this guy in the closet when everyone knows he's gay kind of situations, um, which was not a sensitively dealt with topic in the late 2000s. And so they become dear, dear friends very quickly. They move in together very quickly. And um, the, one of their first sort of like games they play as as newfound best friends, you often need to have like a bonding ritual when you very quickly make a new best friend is Rachel confides in him that she has a huge crush on her English professor, Dr. Fred Byrne. Um, they decide in a kind of a giddy moment of like, are we really doing this? They're going to hold a book launch for Dr. Byrne at the bookshop they work at for his incredibly unreadable literary sort of academic text. And at that book launch, the plan for Rachel to seduce Dr. Byrne goes very wrong. Actually, James gets with Dr. Byrne and the rest of the novel is kind of dealing with both the fallout of that and just every all the decisions they make afterwards and this year of their lives where they um, are forced to grow up and yeah and that's it <laughs> and that's it except not it because there is if if everyone thinks that that's like the big powder keg moment then they just have to keep reading because these events are just going to like keep hitting these characters in a way that when you are at that point in your life, it feels like everything does just hit you like one after yeah. another, after another, after another, in a way that feels so relatable. Because when you're at that point in your life, everything feels like, oh, just another thing on the list of the way your life's going wrong. Totally, totally. And it's just kind of, there's something very, there's like a fierce indignity when you're that age and you're a young adult. Um, and you realize that the world's problems are also your problems. And like, as, I think especially as millennial people were like, no, but we were told we were special. I can't be the 
victim of market forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's not in my narrative, you know? Right. I was supposed to be the main character. Yeah. Exactly. And then you find out. That's not quite how it works. <laughs> True. That's not how the economy works. No, it doesn't care. <laughs> it doesn't care. And Rachel herself is such a relatable character. She's so deep. There's like so many layers when you're going through. I found myself laughing with her, cringing with her, covering my eyes, being like, I can't believe that she did this, but then also making me think of all the things where I was like, I remember I probably would have made that exact same choice, even though now I'm like, how could you have thought that that would work? Mm. I just have to know how Rachel's voice came to you. How did you sort of begin to form this incredible character? Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that you like her. I feel very dearly towards her. Her voice actually was really, it's interesting. You know, I've been doing this job for a while now and um, it's lovely to keep discovering new things about it. Um, But I discovered this is the first book I've ever written mostly in the past tense. If the entire plot of this novel were happening in the present tense and all these things that happened to Rachel and happened because of her decisions were just hitting her day after day and we were just reading a completely linear event, um, it would feel quite harrowing, I think. I think you would take her at her word when she when she tells you that like her boyfriend is mean to her or or he's not reliable or whatever. We'll get to him later. Or that, you know this sort of struggles she's having with her, both her degree and her job and her friends, they all seem like a lot, like a real tough chew. And they definitely were tough chews, you know, for her going, going through those things. Um, but because she's telling that from the perspective of someone in their mid thirties, who's fine. Like she's in a, she's in a happy marriage. She's pregnant. That's how we open the book. She has a nice career. She's got a great circle of friends. You get a sense that like, this woman, her life is full and it's good, but she's telling you about this terrible series of things that happened to her in her early 20s. And I think because she's looking back rather than living through these things presently, she has a certain amount of affection for her young self that I think we should all strive to achieve. You know, that kind of thing of like, <laughs> God, I was an idiot, but I had good legs. Do you know what I mean? That kind of, that sort of attitude. And I think that once I unlocked that thing, the rest of Rachel came together really easily and the book just kind of flowed out because it's somebody who has a great deal of self-compassion and those characters I discovered are are much more fun to write and they're much more fun to read I think you know going through you know she's going to be okay when you're going yeah. through those moments with her you have this more sense of hope than you would just being like oh how is she going to come out of this how is this going to end it really allows you to like enjoy those moments and like seep into the moments where you know that things aren't going her way. But we've all been there. We've all had those moments where even if you in the moment are like, I know this is not going to help me in the long run, but it's going to feel better now. It's Totally. And I think as well, there's a risk when you're writing a a novel in which you know the lead character is going to be fine. It's like... It's, um, there's a question there of stakes and how do you keep the stakes high and the stakes going and to me the sort of the internal stakes of it are kind of you, you know her she has this huge friendship with her best friend James and it's a very defining relationship in her life and you are also quite clear from page one that her and James are still friends like they live in different countries now but they're still dear friends who see each other a lot and make you know very special holidays to go see each other and that kind of thing so you're like oh good they're still friends that's nice how nice long friendships but then as you go through it be kind of the emotional stakes almost become i can't believe they're still friends 
despite all these things they have done to one another. And I think that to me is like such a testament to like long friendships. And like we've all, if you've known someone for 15 years, you've done some things to them um, and they've done some things to you and you've said the unsayable and, and that is like, it's like, wow, that becomes the stakes to me, you know, almost. And I think, I mean, I definitely have some friends like James. And I think everyone, I hope everyone has a friend like James, even though you go through terrible things together, you need that person who's seen you at your worst to be able to see you at your best. And that friendship is so well defined in this. I think friendship is such a hard thing to write because almost everyone has friends. And so almost Mm -hmm. everyone comes to it with this expectation of, well, that's not what my friendships are like, or, you know, that is what my friendships are like. How did it feel to sort of write that relationship between the two of them? It's so interesting with the thing of everybody has friends. So on, on one level, it should be the easiest thing to write because it's like, yeah, everyone likes hanging out with their friend. Everyone has complex feelings about their friends. Go for it, you know. But there's also this thing of like um, hearing about another friendship group's private jokes is a bit like hearing about somebody else's dream. It's like, <laughs> okay, and like, and kind of thing. Right. So it's really it was it's it's a it's a tricky thing to um write a dynamic you're selling in as being kind of lovable and inescapable and so heady and beautiful without sort of boring the reader I guess and I think again it always comes back to stakes like a friendship I think we think that great dramatic you know stories can come out of a mere friendship because it's like well what are the stakes you know it's like it's not love it's not marriage it's not children it's not a wedding or whatever so therefore what is the framework holding the story up, you know? And with Rachel and James, their friendship is immediately injected with so many secrets. There's this thing where at the very beginning of their dynamic, um, she's so excited that he wants to hang out with her. And I think she's coming at it from this very 2010, she's 20 years old in 2010. And she's like, oh my God, a gay man wants to be friends with me. (laughs) Like, I must be cosmopolitan. <laughs> um, and then she has this immediate thing where, you know, she's, she's off to meet her boyfriend for a drink and she says, oh, do you know, do you want to come with us? You know, I'm sure you, you'd love to meet him or whatever. And then James makes a crack being like, oh, I wouldn't want him to get jealous. And then Rachel laughs like a little too hard. And he's a bit like, okay, kind of thing. And she's like, and she's kind of like, come on you're gay we all know you're gay and he's like I'm not I'm very straight and she's like okay are we still joking kind of thing and it's like this first thing in their friendship where she loses her footing really quickly and she's like oh oh no I've 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 hurt someone and and I wouldn't say their whole dynamic is like that but definitely there's an immediate sense of like they want to do right by each other all of the time and they don't always and that to me injects the relationship with stakes and that and that is the key to writing i think rather than trying to slavishly dedicate to the page okay but how do i make a private joke funny for everybody it's more about like okay what at risk in this relationship all the time you know and i think that's what makes it so easy to read and easy to understand because everyone's been in that situation with a yeah. friend where you've you've said something and you're like i did not know that that would kick off like that and you're like but I really just especially in early friendship you're like I but no I just really want to be your friend and I thought we were here but I guess we're here right right and totally I've been thinking a lot about sort of um you know gay men and straight women and how we 
for some reason, even though, you know, in terms of like frank depictions of queerness in the media, obviously they've been coded references for years. You know, there's always been gay characters and things. We just weren't calling them gay characters. But in terms mm-hmm. of like frank and honest depictions of sort of gay men and straight women, we have Will and Grace and, and we had it then kind of thing. But and we have, you know, Hannah and Elijah in girls. But like really there aren't that many relationships that are depicted like this. And yet we have convinced ourselves that it is a cliche and that it is boring and it's kind of like mm-hmm. almost eye-rolly to even try and write something of merit or of literary value um, that focuses on this relationship. And I think people, when they've been discussing this book with me, have kind of been using the sort of term gay best friend in quotes. And I think it's such a worthy dynamic of like literary study. And I think part of that, particularly when you're talking about um, James and Rachel, so much of it is to do with the mutual holding up of fantasy, you know, like she will let him be straight if he, if that's what he needs to be right now. And she won't question him because she loves him and he will make her feel like somebody who's not just like, you know, what she feels like, like, a, like a dumpy English grad with no future. Like mm-hmm. he will kind of let her believe she's Ava Gardner, you know, kind of. And that's, I find that very beautiful, you know. They definitely meet each other where the other one is. They they don't ask yeah. each other to be something different. They're ready to be there for each other. And so much of yes. it is the minutia of their relationship, the like sitting in bed together, eating pastries and, you know, just the little details of their life that they kind of build together in this like terrible house that has no heating and, you know, like it just feels so bleak for maybe other people to look at from the outside but they're really trying to give each other worthwhile things to like look forward to and to get through this time in their life it's it really hits you in the heart thank you so much I'm so delighted by that do you do you incorporate a lot of your personal life into these characters do you have a James do you have a Carrie do you have these characters in your life (laughs) that you're pulling details from it's very interesting with this one because this is my sixth book. So I wrote two uh, novels for adults that came out in the UK and Europe and a trilogy for teenagers and, and now this one. And and The Rachel Incident has the most autobiographical details from my life put in them, you know, but every novel I've written has borrowed from my life, hugely kind of thing. But it's it's funny because I've, I've hidden in plain sight with the YA stuff cause, because it's fantasy like I've my entire the story of my entire teens is like written across those three books over four hundred thousand words, but nobody ever thinks it because they're it's about magic, you know. So um, it's lovely. But in terms of um, the stuff in Rachel that's borrowed from life, I um, when, yeah, when I was twenty, I was working in in retail in HMV, which I think there was a version of in I think there was maybe a couple of in the US, but essentially a virgin megastore, a Christmas temp called Ryan started working there. Everyone thought Ryan was gay <laughs> and he he wasn't prepared to come out at that time. Uh, we quickly moved in together and uh, we lived together for a year and we remain best friends now. Um, and in terms of the actual plot, like this is like quite... Um, a high wire relationship plot where like there's a lots of betrayal and secrets and all that kind of stuff. And that is all fiction. And it's all sort of soap opera and it's all that. But um the, the emotions of the time were very real, which was that I was somebody 
who I'm not very like Rachel in temperament, but in terms of somebody who'd felt like their life was over before it had even begun, I, I was very much there. And our lives together that we created, it made me feel like I was at the center of like a very glamorous, hopeful and fun world. And I just really wanted to convey that, you know, that you just all the many of the stories that we get about young people opening up to themselves are about young people like going, moving to New York or moving to London or whatever. Um, and this is about somebody who moves two miles down the road, you know, and, and still has this enormous like renaissance of the soul and grows up hugely, even though they're in the city they've been in their entire lives. There's nothing quite like the trauma bond friendship from working in retail. I mean, I've yes. most of my life up till now working in retail, whether that's in bookstores or other. And there's nothing quite like that immediate and high pressure friendship of working in a store with someone. Oh, totally. Especially if you meet somebody on a Christmas shift. It's like they have mm-hmm. seen you in a position and you have seen them in a position. Absolutely. It's it creates a different relationship that people can't really understand unless you've experienced that interaction. Along with these great characters, there are so many other characters. In the, I mean, really, this book does not work without the characters that you've created. They sing on the page. Whether or not you like them at any given moment is kind of dependent on what they're going through at the time. Rachel has a boyfriend, Carrie, who is very intriguing is not perhaps your typical um romantic lead in a novel i think that that i really enjoyed that aspect of him that we don't often see love interests in in books that aren't these like dashing gallant men yeah i'm i'm interested in i'm so of all the like responses i'm curious about i think carrie is like the one i'm the most curious about because i yeah like the thing about Carrie is that he appears about a hundred pages into the novel. The novel's not crazy long, you know. Um, you already have James and Rachel who are like dominating a lot of just space and time with just their dynamic and how fizzy it is, you know, and fun. And then you have Dr. Byrne, who's this sort of towering figure who they both think find just so glamorous and his wife Deanie is kind of her own form of like bougie artsy glamour and so that's already like a crowded house and so for somebody to really earn their place as a romantic lead they really have to earn their place you know and so (laughs) the first interaction that Rachel and Carrie have together is she's bumming a cigarette off on a night out which is how I've met 80% of the men I've slept with and um, uh, he He's kind of like when they're exchanging names, he says his name is James. And she's like, oh, sorry, that won't do. I already have one of those. And mm-hmm. and so then the relationship is she calls him by his last name, which is Carrie for for duration of the relationship. And um, he is like incredibly, there's a line that James Devlin says about him, which is that man would walk over a hot coals for you, but he won't commit to lunch plans. Like he genuinely, he feels such a deep emotional connection with Rachel and they have a, an enormous sexual chemistry but he's also like he just cannot like get it together like he cannot attend work on time he cannot charge his phone not to mind even answer his text message like he cannot keep the thing charged it's just like it's all just like a mess like I think if he were like a contemporary character he'd probably get diagnosed with ADHD or something and be on Ritalin and he like would be great but this is 2010 so he doesn't have that Rachel's kind of perspective on him is that like he must be like 
she's trying to like make him into Mr. Big in her head. Like she's trying to be like, oh, he's a commitment phobe and he's cold and he's distant. When actually he's not that cold or distant. He's just a bit of a like, he's kind of can't get it together. For all of his sort of shortcomings with that, he's just very silly. He's like a very silly guy who adores his clever girlfriend. He's probably a little childlike for his age. He's kind of a Peter Pan figure, but he ultimately is kind of, is very good hearted. And um, I really enjoyed writing him because like all the men I've ever loved have, have not been Mr. Rochester types or Mr. Darcy types. They've been like silly weirdos. And uh, I, I, I had so much fun on the page with him. It really feels so much more natural than these, like, I just think, like, I read some of these books out there with these, like, super, super tall, dark and handsome strangers that, you know, come out of nowhere and sweep you off your feet. And I'm like, I don't know anyone who's ever actually experienced that. Oh, totally. It's like, you know, his eyes crinkle when he smiles and is sort of the perfect the tan thing. And like, he's distant at first, but then immediately he reveals his childhood trauma and then he's right. perfect. And, and, and like, maybe he's a secret billionaire and yeah. you know, his father left him some sort of company. But it's always like, no, this is just like a nice guy who's got his own problems, but he, he cares. And it's like, well, when you're 20, what else do you want? I mean, you just yeah. want someone to care and be interested. Yeah. And he's just like obsessed with her. I think what I love about Rachel is that, um, you know, she kind of, she thinks of herself as kind of a heifer, you know, she's sort of, she's six foot tall. She's like a, she's a good, a fine build of a woman, as my grandfather would say, um, which is like, it's a tough thing all the time, but it's, it's particularly tough in 2009 when like, you know, size zero is happening and it's sort of, but he just, he says to her at one point where she's like, you have a body like Wonder Woman, like shut up. Like you, he, like she is his greatest fantasy and like, he's always just like following her from room to room, putting his hand up her skirt and telling her she's a genius. Like it's kind of the ultimate right. fantasy really. It doesn't matter that he doesn't shower and he doesn't change his sheets. <laughs> and she's just looking for someone to like take her seriously and to, to actually see her as someone that has, has a worth of value. And she's sort of floundering, looking for this way to prove that she has these things and he can give that to her. Yeah, I just love him. I think he's great. <laughs> I do too. But my my other favorite character, like I guess favorite is maybe the wrong word, but that maybe people wouldn't agree with me on that I would be most curious is I really love Deanie. Okay. Because I feel bad for her in so many ways because mm. she just seems so helpless at so many times. But yet she somehow has this like the dream, which is the career in the arts that everyone wants at this point. But, you know, so few people can get and she doesn't maybe come by it in the most like self-worth kind of way. I mean, maybe it's kind of handed to her. But yeah, but what I like about Deanie is that she is kind of she, you know, the thing about it's hard to get a job in publishing anywhere, like mm -hmm. ev everywhere. Um, but she in Ireland, it's particularly hard to get any kind of job in the arts. And Deanie is like a senior editor at a very respected publish publishing house. She's clearly very good at her job. She's incredibly kind. Um, and, and just a very like a sweet hang, you know, she's like not I think there's a temptation when you're writing these kind of older, impressive women in books who are like supposed to be mentors to the kind of the younger woman that they're like very distant or brash or whatever. But like she Deanie's like incredibly sweet and just really. And it's almost like she's almost she's so convinced of her own good intentions that 
she has enormous blind spots. Um, one of them being that her husband is bisexual, I think, really, although he he rather pretentiously refers to himself as ambidextrous. Um, of course. And he's like, he has to have like a different guy reason. You know, he and his her husband is sort of cheating on her and the but also she um she's uh, hires Rachel to be her intern and then she upgrades her to being her assistant because Rachel is um you know, a highly competent person and she never really pays Rachel, you know? So she's kind of, it's weird because she's living in this world in publishing where most people who start off have gotten the kind of start that she has got. I like, you know, through, she, so she's the daughter of quite a famous poet. And so she has this kind of blue blooded intelligentsia thing running through her. And so there's this kind of assumption that everybody at a junior level is kind of got money in the family or connections or whatever she's working in an industry where it's really failing like book sales are down bookshops are closing the kindle is coming it's really hard to get a start so she thinks just by giving rachel any kind of a start she's being very generous but actually she is exploiting rachel's labor but they never have a conversation about this and so the way they work their relationship is um Sort of, Dini gives her these opportunities that feel like a lot, but actually don't amount to much. And Rachel casually steals from Dini, just like little things. Just pops in the bathroom and and you know, <laughs> yeah, takes a couple of the cosmetics. Yeah, I mean, and those are the moments where I was like, that's such a bad idea, but it's also like such a twenty-year-old like thing to do. Yeah. Like she won't notice, and whether she does or doesn't, you know, it's such a like easy way for Rachel to just feel like she's got that little bit of control in that situation that is so completely out of her control. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's, it, it becomes this thing where like, they're sort of friends to her in a way, you know, like cause she sees James's sort of covert boyfriend and Jeannie's kind of her employer, but kind of not They're They're in their thirties and forties. So, you know, it's, it's like the lines get very blurry, which is where the drama ensues. It certainly does. <laughs> it's, it's so hard. It sounds like when we're talking about this book, this book is about nothing. Um, but the plot is so twisty that you kind of need to keep it a secret, I think. It, yeah, it is truly one of those things that I was so glad I didn't know really anything when I started other than just what you can get from from like hearing some of my co-workers who had already read it like talk about it here and there and I was like nope I don't want to hear anything else because I just need to experience it and by the time I got to the end I was like okay well I don't know how I'm going to tell anyone of what this is about <laughs> but I'm just going to tell everyone they have to read it oh wow and, that's great thank you um do you feel like this is an Irish story because this is so like geographically tied to what was going on in this time. Obviously, it's very relatable for people during, you know, similar age to this at any point. But there is so much into this that feels locked to this time and this place. Yeah, it's funny because, um, I mean, it's what they tell you over and over again in publishing, which is that the, the, the universal is found in the hyper-specific and this, I think, is the most specific book I've ever written. And it's funny because when I wrote my first novel in 2016, the main character, it was like very much written to be like a modern fable almost. It was like um like a gothic fairy tale, but set in, in, in the world of advertising. And the character was sort of like, 
And every woman to the point where I don't think I ever stated where her hometown was, you know, and I think that was fine for that book. But I remember part of me thinking that like she and the main character was British working in London. And I remember feeling like, oh, I'm just going to keep my options open or something in in a sense of being like, okay, you know, it's sort of she's easy to relate to every woman and whatever. But as I've um, continued in my career and found more kind of confidence and gotten more and more specific about the kind of place that I'm from, I've been like, oh, it's actually the more specific you are about something, the more relatable people find it. Um, which I think we know that going into fiction, but I think it takes trial and error to truly believe it and to practice it. And so this is such, yeah, it is such a specifically Irish story. Not only is it dealing with the um, 2008 financial crash and how that hit Ireland specifically, but also it's dealing with a country that, um, you know, gay marriage was only made legal in 2015 and homosexual acts, I think as they're termed in law, was illegal until 1997. The last Magdalene Laundry, which was a um, institution that imprisoned mostly young women for the crimes of sex outside of marriage um, and profited from them. The last one of those closed in 1996. Um, Abortion was illegal until three years ago. It's a country that has a very deep conservative right-wing history that has changed very quickly in the last few years. And what was so fascinating about this being my first adult novel that's been published in the US is that I deal with a lot of these things. I deal with in the sort of political landscape of Ireland and the shift that was hap- beginning to happen during the setting of this book, where it was going from an extremely right-wing place to more of a left-wing place. And I sold this in America, and it was like Roe was being overturned the week that I sold it. And I remember writing a letter to Jenny just my my commissioning editor and being like I'm 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 just so sorry, I'm really really sorry. Um, but like if I've learned anything from being from an incredibly right wing country, it's that the kind of the the rage it fosters in people, it's like this like strong mineral vein that runs through the entire country, and then it just bursts open. And when it bursts open, these incredible people emerge, these incredible stories emerge. Like I, it, it feels really weird to be from a country that is like, quote unquote, having a moment, you know, like, but that moment has been like the accrual of many, many moments of feeling like you don't matter or feeling like your country doesn't hear you. And I hope that this period that the US is going through right now is not as long as the one that I'm, that Ireland went through. But I hope that the the mineral vein that bursts out of it is is beautiful and triumphant. And yeah, and, and so in answer to your question, like, yes, it's a very Irish story. <laughs> I think it'll work so well for sort of the maybe older Gen Z, younger millennials who didn't quite experience this period of time, but were coming sort of right after it and sort of looking to see what's coming next. For them, I know you've written like some of your most popular books here in the U.S. are your YA series, which, you know, some of those readers are going to be quickly transitioning towards the Rachel incident. That's the hope. Yeah. And so they'll sort of be able to move from that space with you into this next one and sort of see what's on the horizon for them which is an exciting thing to get to sort of bridge that gap between the two. Does it feel very different? I mean, when you write for one versus the other, do you feel like you're writing from a very different place or is it all just coming sort of 
from the same no, vein. What's interesting, I think, um, writing YA, like so, as I, as I mentioned, I wrote two novels, um, and then I spent sort of four years doing that trilogy, um, four or five years, and it taught me so much about writing. It was it, because, like, the way that trilogies have to be published is that you really want to get them all on the shelves while the original generation is still enjoying them, because like what mm-hmm. you enjoy at thirteen may not be what you enjoy at. 17. In fact, it almost never is. Um, writing that much material in such a short amount of time, it was like a kind of a writing boot camp. It was almost like doing an MFA that you get paid to do um, because it's like you cannot write good YA unless you have like incredibly strong and deep characters. And when you're spending three books with the same sort of five or six characters, the kind of motivations and the nuances and whatever, they have to be so much deeper than <laughs> a character that you're just with for one book, which was my, you know, experience of of the two other adult novels. And so I think in terms of like developing characters that have very deep histories and psychologies, it sort of came to me much quicker with Rachel. And also it's like if you're writing three books of of, of sort of fantasy you have to have big plots, like big, big plots that like interweave and call back and and sort of emerge at just the right time. And those books really taught me how to do that. And so I felt like I took everything I learned from writing that trilogy and then put it into a very contemporary, hyper-realistic novel, which is The Rachel Incident. And I guess the reason I point that out is because I've definitely had, uh, I would never get it from a Barnes & Noble interviewer because they're, you guys have been amazing about my YA books, but definitely I've had interviewers be like, okay, so you took a break to do that, all that stuff for probably, I assume money, and now you're back to make your art. Is that correct? And it's like, no, it's all the art. You know, it's, mm-hmm. all, um, it's all part of, you know, what I want to explore and discuss as a writer. And I feel like, yeah, it really taught me it was weird that writing something so commercial it taught me how to be a better literary writer you know if there's anything that you know we're seeing in this renaissance of young adult literature i mean young adult literature is so different now than when i was yeah 13 14 i I don't know how anyone would say it's not just as you know based in art as any other literary fiction i mean some of these plots that come out of young adult literature are incredible and these authors are incredible as well and there's such a different set of expectations when you're writing for young people you have to have a different mindset when you're writing for young people than when you're writing for adults who you feel like okay you can make these decisions on based on your own experiences but when you're writing for young people they're still learning and growing and you kind of have to treat them a little differently than you would treat an adult audience absolutely and also it's like young people are um inherently political i think because and we, we, I mean, everyone's like, oh, wow, these new Gen Zers, they're so political on TikTok or whatever. And you know, it's, I think that's the, that is the state of being 15 is that you are learning really quickly about all the things that are wrong with the world and you still can't, and you're sort of not hardened or cynical yet. So you're still so, you have so much faith in the ability for change and all that kind of stuff. And they want to read like, yes, magical fantasy plot lines, but they also want to read like, political plot lines and and that's why they love fantasy so much because fantasy and sci-fi are great places to explore political mechanics and sort of what why the world is certain ways and they really want to read about things that are like here's the macro political thing and here's the micro of how this person is being affected and like definitely you see that in the Rachel Linson as well I think it could easily be shelled as a young adult book you know they got some swearing but 
you know, <laughs> yeah. do a light edit for content and then yes, you're there. Exactly. But that's such a like, I mean, those two things, I don't think they can be, you can't split them up. The sort of literature for adults and literature for young people, it's, we've all re- read both. I mean, so many people, like when I was working in bookstores, they'd come in and be like, you know, a, people in their 30s and 40s, they'd be like, is it embarrassing to ask for the YA section? I was like, oh. no, please, let me, like, read what yeah, you want to read. Totally. I'm increasingly thinking that, like, YA is no longer a age range, but a genre definer. Do you know what I mean? As in, like, mm-hmm. it's a, yeah. it is as valid a genre as sci-fi or fantasy or crime or whatever. It, 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 it refers to, yes, the age of the characters, but also just a sort of fluidity and um, a sort of a uh, set of expectations that I think is very common to genre, you know? Yeah. No, it's definitely a much different. I wonder sometimes, like, God, if I would have had these books when I was younger, no. like, imagine I would never would have left the library, the bookstore, my room, any of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, it's incredible. It's, a, I'm so proud to be a YA author. I, I I think that there's so much merit to be had in that in that genre in that field. Still, there's a lot more to be seen from so many authors. It's exciting. Do you miss the world of the Rachel incident? Do you miss these characters now that you've finished? And I mean, you still get to talk about them because you know yeah. you're doing all this publicity for the book. But do you miss sort of sitting in that world with them, or you're like that was that was enough and I'm done? I I do miss them. You know, I do. And um, but I think what's what's lovely is that. So many of the characters were drawn from like that, like that James Devlin was, he was drawn from my friend Ryan. And when I was writing the book, I, I don't think I could have really done it without either his encouragement or his approval. And so I have these people in my life who I can talk to about this book and it still is real for us. And we're like, oh, that's so James kind of thing or whatever. And I do, I do miss them. And often when I see like, um, you know, for example, like I'm a big fan of, you know, Matt Rogers or Joel Kim Booster and they're, you know, young gay men working in comedy um, who are mostly based in New York. And I'm like, oh, I bet I bet James is friends with them kind of thing. And like I, they, they are, these characters are very real to me. Um, and I do like thinking about what they'd be up to. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's very literary to do sequels and I don't think there's much space for a sequel, but I would love to. Um, would, yeah, I would love to see how they're getting on, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I don't see a sequel necessarily. And like, in some ways, you're also like, I don't want a sequel because I want to just like imagine what I think yeah. the characters are doing now. But I definitely was like, I just hope they're all doing well. Like, you, you yeah, know, right. Like, you know, you can imagine all the things they're like getting up to, but you're like, I, I, and they're still making mistakes. You can also imagine that none of them are out there like just getting it all perfect. But yeah, but they're having a good time, I think. One of my favorite questions to ask, of course, is who are the Carolina Donahue literary influences? Who are some of the authors that have made your writing what it is now? Oh, wow. What a good question. I would say Maeve Binchy is a huge one for me. I actually came to her books quite late. I read Circle of Friends. Is she a big deal over in the US? Yeah. Okay, great. When I, my kind of growing up, she was like very much a book, books that your grandmother would read, you know, my grandmother had all mm-hmm. of them and the way they were packaged was definitely like that was the, would always be like a picture of a, of a rocking chair with a blanket over it next to a hearth. And it's like, I'm not reading that. And then I had to read it for my podcast, Sentimental Garbage. I read Circle of Friends and that is a 700 page book about just like a bunch of people going to university in the sixties in Dublin. And it's like, just so beautiful and so funny and like 
it really it was one of those books where I was like, oh my God, this is the kind of book I should be writing. And definitely, I think the Rachel Instant owes a lot to Circle of Friends. Um, so she's huge, huge influence on me. Another a big influence on this book was um, Brother the More Famous Jack by Barbara Trapedo, which is a little bit of a, I don't know if it's big over there. Again, I have no idea what, what American bookstores look like because I've only been in one ever, which is a kind of a ver- like another sort of like a college story about a woman who falls in love with like two brothers from the same family. And it's another book that's been told from the perspective of like somebody who's looking back and being like, God, I was an idiot, but didn't I have great legs? Um, which is just a perspective about love. Um, but like, I also get a lot of inspiration from like, like I think the one of the books that made me want to be a writer was like flowers in the attic, you know, cause I was, I remember reading it and being like, you can just put anything in a book, you know? And yeah. like, wow, you can, you can put anything in there and it doesn't matter how, how twisted it is. You can do it. You know, that's, that was a huge realization for me. When I was Rachel's age, I was obsessed with Haruki Murakami, um, which was definitely like a cool girl thing of the time to be into sure. Haruki Murakami. But I still love those books. I still think like Kafka on the Shore is is wonderful and Dance, Dance, Dance is wonderful. So yeah, at the moment, my big influence is um, I'm kind of reading through Meg Wallitzer. I'm like, I'm very like, where have you been on my life, lady? Like, like I can't <laughs> believe it's taken me so long to get to her. Sometimes that's the fun, though, is when you're like, wait, I've just discovered someone and they've got several books that I can like blow through and it just like fits right where you are in that moment. I mean, totally. I know publishing is obsessed with like debuts and like, can you believe this 17 year old? She wrote like a whole thing about the Crimean War. Like, And you're like, wow, uh, that was crazy. And like either okay, half the time, and I'm saying this as somebody who's currently being marketed as a debut author in the US because sure, because it's my debut adult in the US. um, But most of the time, a debut is fairly disappointing because they haven't learned how to do it yet. And if they have learned how to do it yet, it's because they did an MFA program and somebody was kind of looking over their shoulder and you can sort of tell. And that's not me, you know, trying to poo-poo debut writers. I, I, I just think that, like, we're so obsessed with them as an industry that, like, sometimes you forget that, like, oh, there are people who've been doing this for decades who have, like, a whole shelf of books. And when you discover those people that you love, you're like, oh, wow, is all these treats for me. Like, I think what was great about, you know, Gabrielle Zevin getting her flowers sort of 10 years into her career is that like, wow, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is great. And now we can read like AJ Fickery and like go back into her like, right. And it's like so amazing, you know, and yeah. That's the joys of of sort of like delving into these authors is there's always more. There's always someone else. There's always another thing. And it's just it never ends. You, you're right? going to have a book for the rest of your life. There's always going to be another book. Totally. I just I just wish more publishing breakthrough success stories looked like Gabrielle Evans, you know, where it's like, wow, this person wrote a bunch of books and this one is really broken through. But look at all these other ones, you know. Right. And like same yeah. with like Taylor Jenkins Reid. It's like she broke through and it's like, look at all these other ones. And we're getting more and more of that. And I think the reason that we're getting more and more of that lately is because of TikTok. All you need is that one influencer, that one bookseller, the one yeah. whatever to find your book and to to put it in the hands of as many people oh as gosh. they can. And I would pay any amount of money to see what Madeline Miller's royalty statements looks like, you know, because like Song of Achilles, I remember reading that book in like 2014 and then being like, yeah. oh, this is a great book. And then like kind of forgetting about it. And then suddenly TikTok is like, have you heard? Yeah, like no, she must have sold that book for like what fifteen thousand pounds probably, and now she's like rolling in it. I'd say <laughs> it's such a the industry is doing some 
very new and exciting things right now through social media. It's yeah, it's something to watch for sure. It's great. And what I love about it is that I don't, I think there are authors who are doing great stuff on TikTok and with social media, but I think for the most part, it's none of our business. You know, it's like, sure. if the children find you, the children find you, right. you know, it's like, don't read the reviews and don't search yourself on TikTok. Are the <laughs> Oh, I'm searching myself on TikTok. <laughs> oh, you're like, oh no, I'm looking every day. I'm, I'm looking. Checking. Oh, I'm definitely popping in because just because the YA videos they make are so funny. That's true. It's it's good content. I could not watch it. It's it's too good. But I more think that it's like, it's not for me to try and make videos to try and hack the teens into thinking that I like my book. It's like, it's up to the, it's up to the algorithm. The algorithm. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. All right. My last question, I always end on this and some people's favorite and some people's least favorite is what's next? Do you have anything that you want to tell us about coming in the future? Yeah, it's a massive gear change. Um, so if you liked the Rachel incident, this is nothing to do with that. Um, <laughs> so I, it's weird. Um, I seem to have fallen into this pattern with um, writing where I write one book that's, you know, incredibly magical, fantasy, um, outlandish and imaginative. And then I write one incredibly realistic book that's about real world characters. And so I have the Rachel Incident and now I'm my next book, which I am still waiting for my first round of feedback on from my publisher, is called Skip Shock. It's a um, my first fantasy book to take place completely in an alternative world, um, which is like the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It's, you know, you have to come up with religion and currency and what do they eat and how do they eat and all that um i won't go into it in huge detail right now but i'm really excited it's very ambitious and i hope people like it Uh, i'm sure they will i can't wait for that because basically after after these books i'm ready to read anything you write so oh great thank you (laughs) can't wait thank you so much for this conversation today i can't wait for everyone to get the rachel incident and to find out all of the drama that these characters yeah, go through. Yeah, to find They're... out what the incident is. Yes. Thank you so much. This has been great. All right. Thank you. This is wonderful. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of The Rachel Incident. I'm Mark at my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, but I'm going to have two of my favorite book buddies take over today. Madison, Mary... We're going to have you jump in. Madison, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Thank you. I would love to. I'm Madison, joining you from my store in Los Angeles, California. And when I was thinking of books to recommend with The Rachel Incident, two things I like honed in on was that bookshop setting. As a bookseller, I'm kind of biased. I like a good bookshop setting. And women who are a little bit messy. So that is why I chose How to Find Love in a Bookshop by Veronica Henry. And while this book is very sweet and uplifting. It's a very feel-good book. The characters that are in it kind of have an interwoven storyline that can get a little bit messy. None of their lives are perfect because they are very human. So the setting for this book is Nightingale Books, which is the ideal spot for book lovers. It's in this cozy little town, cozy little bookshop. Think of your favorite bookshop vibes, and that is what this bookshop is. Um, And it is owned by Amelia Nightingale, who is actually struggling to keep the bookstore alive after her father passes away. So she has people coming to try and like buy her out, 
she's struggling with deciding if that's the best thing to do or if she needs to keep the bookstore because so many people love coming to it and finding it as their safe space. And she also promised her father that she would keep the bookstore alive. You also see Sarah, who is the owner of Peasebrook Manor. To escape her stressful life, she goes to this bookshop kind of as her safe haven. And you kind of see her ulterior motive of coming there. I'm not going to give it away, but it is a little sweet spot in the book. Then you have Jackson, who frequents the bookstore often to find books for his son, who he doesn't get to see that often and who he misses dearly. And then one of my favorite characters is the woman who runs a pop-up restaurant for two in her tiny little cottage. So, you know, there's the plot point for sparking a little romance if you need that in your book. Again, I just love how these character stories are interwoven. It is very much kind of like love actually and book form. And that's one of my favorite movies. And, you know, I like that it's perfect for summer. It's a little messy, but at the end, it's a book with a heart of gold which is why I chose How to Find Love in a Bookshop by Veronica Henry. Mary, that is all I have. What do you have ready for us? I know it's a good one. Okay, okay, Madison, I have Someone Else's Shoes, a novel by Jojo Moyes. This is a story of two women who are hot messes in their own individual way, uh, Nisha and Sam, and it's set in London. And one day they attend the same health club and one of them accidentally takes the other one's gym bag. And that sets off a whole chain of events by losing or finding a pair of shoes. And you meet all these great characters along the way who help these women work through all their messes, really, and either finding the shoes or how do we return the shoes. You don't really know someone until you walk in their shoes. I will say this book has a very cinematic feature to it. At one point, there's a little bit of a heist. And during that part of the book, I really couldn't like breathe until we got to the end of it. So I say definitely, even if you like a little mystery thriller, maybe not, but there's a little bit of that in there. It's a book for everybody. So I highly recommend Someone Else's Shoes by Jojo Moyes. Thank you both so much. Great picks. Like I said, perfect for summer. And, you know, the Rachel incident is just a blast. So I think these are just perfect couplings. So thank you both so much. But that's all we have for today. Thank you for tuning in to Poured Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. Madison, Mary, where can we find you? I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN Events Grove. I'm Mary. You can follow me at BN Beaumont TX. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in and happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.